The stories, the passion, the blood, sweat and tears. Up close with those sporting legends who have given it their all. Here's the big fella! It's a miracle! Oh yeah! This is On The Hill with Snowy. Yeah, g'day, it's Snowy with episode 12 of On The Hill Podcast. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you head to wherever you get your podcasts from and type in On The Hill Podcast. Then you just need to uh, follow, subscribe, like, comment, give me a rating, give me some feedback. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. And if there's any guests that you'd like to see on the podcast, just leave me a note wherever you get your podcasts from. And check out the back catalogue. Last week I spoke with Corey Parker. There's also chats in there with Mark Bosnich, Billy Moore, Billy Harrigan, Justin Hodges, Kevin Campion, a whole heap of former NRL players and sports stars. Uh, Today, speaking of sports stars, I sit down with one of the most genuine characters that rugby league's ever seen. He's played for the Roosters, for the Dragons, uh, for the Panthers. He's played Origin. He's won a grand final and has some pretty interesting tattoos. We get into that and a whole lot more. Joining me on the hill this week is Jamie Soward. This is On The Hill with Snowy. Sally, first and foremost, mate, thank you so much for jumping on the podcast with me. I sent you a Hail Mary on social media with my fingers crossed that you'd come on and have a chat. Uh, And a week later, here we are, mate. So straight off the bat, thanks so much for being here. Nah, all good, mate. Thanks for having me. I I love uh, talking sport and about my career and stuff like that. So hopefully uh, we can enjoy the next however long together and, and get some good content. Appreciate it, mate, because you've got your own podcast, the Sweet and Soured podcast. I've been listening to that through COVID. If you're a sports fan or if you're just a fan of good banter, that's a podcast you have to check out. <laughs> How did that one come about? Yeah, I did a basketball one, uh, an NBA one, uh, probably about two or three years ago. And um, when I moved, uh, I had my business partner at the time move away, so I kept the business name and stuff like that. And I uh, just got a, met a couple of guys through footy and thought I'd rebrand it a little bit and it's grown into uh, three podcasts now that's a sort of business. So uh, we've got that one that we do on a Tuesday night, which is uh, with Nick Davis, who's at the Swans, premiership winner. Um, we've got the Short and Sound, which I just talked footy on a Monday morning, just answering fan questions. And then we've got an NFL one with Chad Townsend, Trent Copeland and Nick Davis. So uh, a mixture of American sport meets um, Australian sort of, uh, society in the sweet and sound one, the NRL one's pretty serious, and then the NFL one is for those uh, NFL lovers that don't get enough sports action and uh, actually have their girlfriends or missus let them stay up late and watch uh, early morning NFL. So it's uh, the podcast business is growing, as you would well know, and I'm lucky enough to have a lot of good people around me, and uh, we have a lot of fun doing it as well. Sweet and soured, was that a, um, a sign that a fan used to hold up at the at Cogra and Wind? Do I, do I remember seeing that on a banner somewhere? Is that where that inspiration came from? Yeah, it is. Uh, I had to ask him if I could use it as a business name. It's oh, been for a couple of years, just out of courtesy. I was going to do it anyway. But, um, yeah, I think I've got one of those signs somewhere there. But, uh, yeah, it was the, probably the best uh, sign in my career. I've probably seen a couple of signs that were bagging me along the way. But, um yeah, no, it was good to, it just sort of flows and like I said, you know, to grow into three podcasts that stand on their own uh, this year just through COVID and stuff like that and, and work on it, that all goes together and the sweet uh, business name uh, is, is growing. I want to touch on the American sport before we get into your career because I follow you on Instagram and I know how much you love your basketball. 
And I was just Googling, you know, when you know you're having a chat to someone, and I'm a massive rugby league fan, so I knew a lot about your rugby league career, and it came up um, Jamie Sauer's tattoos. So I clicked on that, and I thought, <laughs> I'll have a quick look. And I know, because I knew you had the uh, Larry Bird tattoo. Is it true? Have you got a, a Celtics player's name tattooed on your uh, on your backside? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that come about? Any, uh, well, anyone that knows me uh, or, you know, my social media knows that I'm a diehard Boston Celtics fan. Um, you know, the, the love for that started with my stepdad and the love for Larry Bird and how he played the game and how he approached it. And I was too young, obviously, I've watched Larry, but, um, you know, the, the videos that I've seen and, yeah, I admired the way he carried himself as well. So he's always been a a hero in our family, and I've got the three on each arm, so that's his tattoo, and then uh, proposed to my wife over yeah. in uh, TD Garden, which is which is Boston's home, home stadium over there, was lucky enough to sort of organise that through some people, so uh, my daughter's name's Indiana, Larry Bird was born in French Lake, Indiana, oh, wow. so um, I'm pretty diehard, but I actually got the chance to um, go over and... Uh, watched the banner raising of retired jersey of Paul Pierce, and yeah. I went with my best mate. So we got the postcode tattooed inside a little clover. And um, six months later, Paul Pierce, or a year later, sorry, Paul Pierce is coming out to Australia, and I got the chance to interview him through the NRL, which was I was pretty much in tears because it was one of the guys that I looked up to, and I got the chance to meet him at an NRL function with Jonathan Thurston. And my mate come rushing up because I, I got him in because we'd gone to Boston to see this happen, so they let him come in because it was so big. Yeah. And um, I got <laughs> he come racing up after we met Paul Pierce and we got a few things signed. He said, "Get your um, backside signed and we'll go get it tattooed." And I said, "Are you serious?" Because I know how hard it was to get him to do his first tattoo. I said, "Okay." So Paul, I go over to Paul. I said, "I'm so sorry, um, Mr. Pierce." Can you sign here? I'm going to get it tattooed. And he goes, you guys are crazy. And I just, yeah, I was running on adrenaline. I uh, was super stoked and went and got it tattooed. So I got, um, yeah, Paul Pierce's tattoo uh, with the number 34 just above the, the caboose. And um, if anyone ever questioned my loyalty to the Celtics, then uh, I'd have to go too far for that story. Like, that is the best story I've ever heard. Have you ever signed... I know someone who's got a Greg Inglis tattoo on their arm, got him to sign it and have got a tattoo. Does anyone, a fan, ever ask you for a signature to get tattooed? Yeah, I've got. I've had two. Um, I had a guy that was a dragon diehard on the Gold Coast come up to us after a game and uh, he said, can you guys sign it? And we said, yeah, what for? He goes, oh, I'm going to go get it tattooed. And we looked across and he had just Dragons players everywhere tattooed. So yeah. uh, he went and got it done. And there was just another random one that I signed, um, yeah, near a caboose as well. And just got it done. So I think, look, when you get a chance to, you know, I got a chance to meet my idols. And I would like to think at some stage I would have been, you know, some little kid's favourite player at some stage. And sometimes that's overwhelming and, you do crazy things that at the time seem good, but other times you just do it because you can. And life's too short to, to worry about everything. So I just, uh, I'm happy to have signed away and um, I'm signature on someone's body somewhere. That is awesome. I can only imagine. That looks close to being a rock star, I reckon, as you could ever get, knowing that someone's walking <laughs> around with your signature tattooed on their arm. Uh, now, let's go back to the start, mate. You were born in Canberra, is that right? Very well done. I've done... 
many a podcast, and a lot of people think I was born in Wagga, but yeah, I was born in Canberra, born and raised in Canberra till the age of ten. So, were you a Raiders fan growing up? Uh, I was whoever was on top fan. I had every jersey. <laughs> I went for the Broncos. I went for the Raiders. Um, early '97, I went for the Sharks. I was just whoever was on top. So, I just loved footy, and um, yeah, I, I didn't didn't have a loyalty to one team. Where does the love for rugby league start, Sally? What age were you when you started playing? I started playing when I was four down in Canberra. Um, always wore my headgear, so I started wearing that when I was four. But my dad was a um, a hard nut rugby league player down there in Canberra, and I made the under twenties Canberra Raiders side. Just wasn't able to go on because he had um, drinking issues and, and alcoholism. So uh, for me, uh, that's sort of where the the love for it came was. You know, always being at the footy and playing footy. Uh, and then, you know, my mum was a, a gifted basketball player and won state league with the Wagga Blaze. So I had sort of the, the footy now mixed with a little bit of, um, I guess, skill and pizzazz from my mum and it just all happened. So um, I played basketball and footy my whole juniors until about 12 or 13 and mum just said I needed to pick because... I uh, just couldn't keep doing both uh, at the same time, so I ended up going to rugby league. Was there a moment when you were a junior, Sally, where you went, I want to play NRL? Was it always your dream? Yeah, it was always a dream. I mean, probably, you know, you watch your, your heroes on TV and you stay up late origin night with the hot dogs and you think, this is awesome, you know, I get to watch footy. You never, I don't think you ever really dream that you're going to be there until you're a little bit older and you can realise how hard the path may be, but also uh, what it's going to take to get there. And I remember, you know, moving to Sydney after a year in Canberra and only being on $10,000 at the time. And, you know, I went into the dole. I was on the dole and the lady said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a rugby league player. And she said, yeah, but you've got to work as well. I said, well, as soon as I get (laughs) another contract, I won't be worried about work. So um, it was always a dream, but I think it's, if, if that makes sense, um, Snowy, that you've, you've got to, to realise a dream, you, you need to realise the hard work that goes into it. Every every kid wants to be a rugby league or a sports person, but if you said to you know, a, a 12-year-old now that you know only 10,500 players have ever played the game of rugby league at first grade level and you know a third of them have played less than 40 games, then... You can't build a career off that. So um, you start to realise when you get older how hard the work is to get there and what it takes. So I think the dreams sort of kick in. They're dreams until they're achievable. And then once you find out they're achievable and how hard work they are, then that's when it starts to kick in. That's phenomenal when you think about it, that only that limited amount of players actually make it to the top. Let's talk about how you started your journey to the top because I heard an interview you did with, correct me if I'm wrong, Matty Elliott on NRL.com about how you ended up at the Raiders. Can you share that one with me? Yeah, it was. Um, I was at a bit of a crossroads um, in, in terms of footy. You know, I'd never made any of the school sides. I left school in year 10, so I didn't have that. You know, state school system wasn't at a strong rugby league school, so um, I was that sort of playing, you know, country riverina and stuff like that, but wasn't really big enough or you know good enough to the selectors to be in those teams regularly. So um, you know, we sort of started to. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And my stepdad knew a guy who knew a guy who could pass on a tape 
to the Raiders. So um, we did an old mix on a VHS, which has proved how old we are. But um, <laughs> we, we did the VHS, and um, my stepdad Hugh, who I you know have known since I was ten, uh, he actually typed up a resume of you know positions and you know what I was good at and what what my weaknesses were and stuff like that. We sent that along to the Raiders, and I got invited to a trial. And I drove down by myself because Mum couldn't go because uh, she had work, so I drove down myself. That was when the old P-platers could probably drive a little bit quicker than what you could now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I drove down by myself and, and put the boots on and you know, played. I think I ended up playing about six to ten minutes. Uh, and then Matty Elliott was sitting on top of the old uh, sheds there at, or the old players' bench at Seaford Oval there. And I got called off and no one talked to me and I got in my car and cried. I only played oh. six, ten minutes and cried the whole way home and told mum that I was giving it up and I didn't want to play anymore and stuff like that because I thought I'd failed. And uh, the next day I got a call to go back to the, to the Raiders. So um, that yeah. interview with Matty Elliott was uh, pretty funny because he, <laughs> I said, why did you not play me longer? He said, I'd already seen what I needed to see. He said, you're the only person that I've ever had send me a resume about what they're good at at footy and stuff. So I'd already known that you were switched on. I just needed to see in the flesh. And after six minutes, you'd, you'd done enough. So, um, yeah, it was pretty cool. Did you think at the time when you were at the Raiders in the under-20s, that's where you'd spend your career? And, and then how did you end up at the Roosters? Yeah, it was a whirlwind because we only had eight games back then. They'd shortened the competition. So I missed the first game through injury. I'd never been injured ever. And I had, you know, tore my groin or hurt my groin, so I just couldn't run and stuff like that. But um, after the eight games, we got knocked out pretty early, and I was just sort of sitting there waiting, thinking that you know, I didn't know what happened. You know, I I played touch my whole life, and I was lucky enough that I'd met Sam Ayub, who was uh, managing Jonathan Thurston and the likes uh, throughout his career, and he sort of said, "If you need a manager," and I laughed. I said, "Mate, I don't need a manager. I don't even know what I'm doing." So. <laughs> Um, I went out and uh, sourced him and, and sort of made a few calls and stuff like that. And the Raiders offered me three grand to stay uh, in 2004, and Sam said, oh, "I think I can get you a little bit more," and got me ten grand to relocate to Sydney for the Roosters on a train and trial sort of basis. Um, and then it, it ended up working well. I trained really hard and I lived with a year by myself with my stepdad, and it was just amazing because I ended up making the team and I was captain and uh, we ended up going through undefeated. So it was a, a pretty um, quick transition. But, yeah, I, I had no idea sort of how rugby league world worked. I just thought that if they liked you, they, they sort of kept you on whatever wage and, and that was it. But, you know, once I got a manager, I realised that there's so much more uh, to being a league player. Those Roosters junior sides just seem to always be there on grand final day. You guys were flying, was it? Two or three grand finals that you guys made in a row, wasn't it? Yeah, so first grade made three in a row from 02 to 04. In, in 04, we had all three grades in. Um, so a lot of those guys that were playing the Premier League, the old first division, uh, they could have played in our team, uh, which is yeah. which is pretty cool. And um, the other year after that, we played Premier League again and, and lost in 05 to Parramatta in extra, extra point, I think. And then the year after again so yeah I moved to Sydney and played in three grand finals on grand final day and uh, I thought that was probably as big as it was going to get I mean I know I debuted in 05 but you know I didn't think 
ever in my wildest dreams that I'd be, you know, playing 12 years of first grade. I thought that it would would have been, um, yeah, that was probably the biggest thing I was going to have was just a couple of junior grand finals. Let's talk about your first grade debut, Sally. Do you remember where you were when you got the call or was it at training when you were told that you were going to make your debut? No, I was, uh, Ricky Stewart was in origin and they'd gone to, um, they'd gone to North Queensland the week before and I went up as the 18th man and they got absolutely wrestled by the Cowboys. Uh, Ricky went into camp and rang me during the week and said, you're going to play first grade, don't tell anyone. Um, so I hung up and rang my mum straight away and, um, got pretty excited about it, but uh, it was Sunday afternoon, May 8, uh, 2005, against the Newcastle Knights, which had, that was the year that they had like 20 players out of their top squad out. They just were ravaged by injury, so um, a nice, easy one. It was only, I think it was 4-2 at half-time, but um, yeah, it was a, a good win in the end. Sally, if you don't feel comfortable answering my next question, mate, honestly, I won't be offended. Um, you got some really bad news, some tragic news after your first grade debut. Your dad suddenly passed away. As a young man, how hard was that for you to comprehend and to handle both mentally and physically? Yeah, it's. Um, I, went, I remember you know, going out that night, getting pissed, making a fool of myself, you know, celebrating and stuff like that and I got up and went to recovery the next morning and picked up my phone had a lot of phone calls people ringing me I, I didn't know what it was uh, until I found out that you know, I spoke to my dad's girlfriend at the time and um, yeah she'd let me know that he'd had a heart attack and passed away that morning so um, for me you know the instant emotions I'm an emotional person and the instant emotions were you know I didn't know really how to feel I I was upset that I never got to say goodbye and uh, that I never... I didn't know whether he watched the game. And, and she said that he did, but I've always felt a little bit of a hole where I wasn't really sure whether he watched the game or not. Um, and the following two weeks were were just a whirlwind, you know. I I went to Canberra. Um, you know, my dad's family and I didn't really see eye to eye on a lot of things and I was still 20 at the time, a young man that was going from the highest you know, achievement in his life so far to, to probably the worst. And um, That two weeks was really hard. I was drinking and you know, at clubs and stuff like that, just getting away from footy, thinking yeah, that, that could have been it. That was my moment of uh, whether it was going to end or not. And I remember coming back to Sydney and I'd you know, like I said, I'd pretty much spent two weeks away from the game and, um, you know, I'd come back to Sydney and I sat down with my stepdad and I was just getting ready to, to leave the house and just go out again and uh, he just said, do you want to go and watch a game of footy? And I said, yeah, I'll go and watch a game of footy. So we went out to, I think it was out near Black, uh, sorry, Parramatta and watched the reserve grade team for the Roosters play. And we just sat there and... Anyone that watches me knows that, uh, anyone that knows me now, I, I don't really talk during the footy. And I just sat there silently and watched it. He leans over about five minutes in and he's like, you know, if you really don't want to play anymore, then, then that's cool. But, you know, don't ever think that you're, you're not going to make it, you know. And just, you know, you don't want to be sitting here watching these guys. Like, you're better than these guys. And um, from that moment on, you know, it just clicked and I went back to training and, forced my way into the first grade team for a couple more times and um, 
yeah, moved on from there. But the, the hardest thing for me today was um, I, it took me a long time to get over it. I don't think, yeah. you know, until I met my wife now, um, who opened me up to a lot of different ways of looking at life, I never, never really dealt with the death of my father so soon after such a high achievement in my life. So um, I battled with that, you know, went through depression, divorce, anxiety issues, all that kind of stuff. Drank too much, gambled too much while I was playing, and um, it took me a long time to get over that. So uh, it was a, certainly a trying time, but in, in other ways, it prepared me to be the best father that I cared for my daughters and a uh, better husband for, for Maddie now. Sally, it probably leads to another question that I've always wanted to ask, and it's something that I've been guilty of myself, of going on to social media after a player's had uh, you know, a difficult game or, or you know, not the best game they've ever played, and it's easy to go on and bag plays without knowing what they're doing or what they're going through in their personal lives. They may have lost someone close to them or they're dealing with some personal issues. How hard is it as a player to cop that criticism from people who don't understand what's going on in your personal life? Yeah, it's, you know, I, people ask me what happened at Penrith and, um, you know, I was going through a divorce. Yeah, that was probably the most stressful part of my life. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I spent years unwinding by drinking and probably punting too much and not really worrying about um, things in my life that needed to be worried about because I was just playing footy and, you know, when you're winning, you sometimes can lose focus of that stuff that keeps you balanced. So um, the, the problem we have today is, you know, we started this podcast with me getting my hero tattooed on my on my butt and the respect that I showed for that situation and, and what that means, it can't all be taken away or abused because a player has won that game and doesn't score enough fantasy points or you lost your multi or all that kind of stuff. So, you know, the, the social media at the moment is anytime, anywhere, without any consequence, and, and you can say anything. So, you know, I'm very um, engaging with fans, which is why I don't mind doing podcasts, but the pro- the best thing about me now is you get me for me. So people don't like that now. They, they want you to, to take the criticism and not buy it back. So um, I, I enjoy myself uh, on social media sometimes too much because people take it the wrong way and stuff, but uh, I think that, you know, in America, for instance, they look at their sports heroes as sports, you know, I guess people as heroes. Mm. In Australia, we don't have that. You know, we have people with tall poppy syndrome, uh, any way to try and bring that next person down to try and get yourself up. So uh, that's that's the problem with our Australian society and sports people. Mate, I couldn't agree more with you, Sally. Let's move on to the Dragons, because you go from the Roosters to the Dragons, two arch rivals. Um, you know, the Antec Day clashes are always one that you circle on the NRL draw each year. How did you end up at the Dragons? Yeah, it was, yeah, funnily enough, um, I'd been dropped by Chris Anderson in the preseason to go back and work on my team skills, which to this day I still have no fucking idea what that meant. Um, <laughs> So I went and I was part-time. I was on, I think I was on 120 and 130 for those next two years. And just, yeah, trained twice a week or three times a week and played for the first couple of months and then got selected in the first grade. We played Cronulla at Cronulla. Uh, Mini kicked a field goal. And I'd gotten some time off because one of my best mates' dad had passed away. So I went to Wagga. 
but the two weeks before that, I was still sitting at home, not getting a look in, and I actually went and had coffee with Nathan Brown, who'd made an inquiry through my manager about coming over. So I went down to have coffee, and you know we just had a bit of a chat, and Brownie sort of said, "Would you come across?" And I said, "Yeah, if you make it happen, mate, I'll, I'll um, come across." So we we shook on it, and back when you could shake hands, we shook on it, and uh, went to Wagga, not even thinking that I was, it was going to happen, and I ended up playing that game, went to Wagga for a couple of days and my manager rang me and said, um, you're signed with the Dragon, you've got to be at training on, on Monday. Um, but the Roosters, you know, Chris Anderson's not happy, he's going to try and keep you at the Roosters. I said, okay. So Chris Anderson rang me and we had a bit of a chat and in the end, he's like, I want you to be my halfback now. And I said, oh mate, it's already done. Like I'm a handshake person and I shook hands with Brownie two weeks ago. So yeah, I'm done. And he hung up on me and I think we waited about five or six years till we talked again, but um, yeah, it was for me. It was all a handshake deal, and I made my way to to the Dragons and watched uh, actually watched the Broncos. They beat I think they beat Newcastle seventy two four that Sunday afternoon. And I said to the boys, oh, "I'm with the Dragons now." And they said, "Oh, who do you play next week?" I said, "I don't know." And they said, "You play the Broncos on on Friday night at Cogra." So I had to sit there and watch them beat Newcastle by seventy, and that was probably my first game. In the red beef. Your debut for the Dragons, Sowie. I'm a huge Broncos fan, and I remember that game because you guys had seven or eight players out, but you personally absolutely slaughtered us. You were slotting goals from everywhere and then kicked the match-winning field goal. What was that like, getting that result and playing such a big part of part in it in your first game for the Dragons? Yeah, well, I was actually living around the corner from Cogra at Alawa just by myself, and... Um... I walked to the game, I walked down there in a hoodie and walked straight in, didn't have anyone sort of stop me or ask any questions or anything like that. I went out there and you're right, we had a heap of players out. I think Rolsey was a late inclusion and yeah. uh, we just had a really simple game plan just to try and build some pressure. I think we had you know, a shitload of repeat sets and just you know built some pressure on, on the Broncos and defended really hard and then iced the game and we won 11-4. But uh, it's funny because when I skip ahead to when Wayne Bennett comes to the club, that was his. That was our first conversation. Was I just want you to play like you did that night, <laughs> pretty much, and uh, we'll 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 take care of the rest. You just keep kicking the ball like that, and we'll we'll take care of the rest. So, um, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. Uh, getting out of Cogra was a little bit hard. I think I had the weekend off as well, so I, I certainly enjoyed uh, down at St George League Club next couple of days. You would have, mate. And your time at the Dragons, Sally, that was a purple patch for you throughout your career. And it was during that time you played for uh, the Indigenous team against the Maoris. Uh, was it a World Cup or was it Australia-New Zealand test? And they had that game on first. What was that like, getting your first senior rep jumper and representing your culture? Yeah, it was It was the 08 World Cup, uh, the Indigenous side versus the Maldives. And um, we were a bit lucky in a way because JT and Hodjo and GI and stuff were all playing for Australia, so it opened up a few more spots for us, um, for us lesser-known players to be able to come in. And I roomed with Preston Campbell all week, and it was just pretty cool. When you think back to being part of that very first Indigenous side and you know, what it meant not only to Indigenous people in Australia, but certainly my family. Uh, I know Dave would have been very proud of representing his Indigenous heritage and... Um, yeah, whilst I don't talk to his family, I know they would have been proud of that moment. And, uh, I remember the haka. Uh, the boys, the, 
Maori boys did the haka, and we'd been doing a war dance or a war cry as well. And I stood on the wing of the of the war cry, and they come over halfway. And there's an unwritten rule like you just don't come over halfway. So the Maori boys start coming over halfway, and our dancers have got spears and boomerangs and stuff. And I thought this is about to fuck kick off here. Like I don't know. I've got the headgear on. I may need another five or six headgears. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So. Um, but yeah, we, we ended up winning the game. I had a pretty good game uh, that that day, and um, yeah, it was the headgear, my first headgear that was coloured in by my stepdad. He spent all night the night before and gave it to me. Wow. Uh, on that day, he just said, "Yeah, I couldn't." He said, "I couldn't let you run out there, not represent your people." So uh, we got the boot. He painted my boots and, and did my headgear, and um, that was yeah. He's he's been a real beacon you know, to some of the biggest moments of my career. Can you remember your first camp with that Indigenous side? Because there were some star-studded players in there. What was that camaraderie and spirit like? Yeah, the first one, uh, Wayne Bennett knew Neil Henry really well, and Neil was our coach, and he wanted me in a room with JT just to spend the week with him, and I was pretty nervous. Um, yeah, it was, this is a guy that I've grown up watching play footy and probably one of the guys that I loved watching every week, and... We went on the, the first day, we we go and get on a team drink, which is like most camps. And um, I I woke up in our room to JT's voice and he said, hey, bro, what are you doing? And I rolled over and I said, oh, I'm so sorry. And he goes, why are you nude? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I think I've fallen asleep. I think I've just passed out. And he goes, yeah, but you passed out nude, bum up in the air on my bed. And uh, that was my first, pretty much, introduction to JT was seeing my hair up on his uh, on his bed. So, but it was an amazing <laughs> week, guys. Uh, culturally, uh, culturally, leaders uh, for, through the time that I played, and you know, playing with Dell was fun. But um, yeah, rooming with those guys and you know, just seeing how much the game meant to them and how they carried themselves certainly propelled that sort of three-year dragon purple patch well let's start the countdown to the 2010 grand final because it actually starts in 2009 you guys were the minor premiers all the pressure all the hype was around you guys winning the comp but you bowed out in the semi-finals in straight sets to the eels and the broncos is that what inspired you to go all the way in 2010 yeah that was that was weird wasn't it because for like a month beforehand i just went to sleep every night like thinking that I'm going to be a champion. Like, I didn't think anyone was going to come near us. And then it just went south very quickly. Um, you know, I remember sitting there having a beer with the boys after we lost in Brisbane and just thought, you know, we probably weren't ready as a group and we needed to go through that pain to to spur us on. And, you know, 2010 was, was business-like uh, when you think about it. And, you know, some people that don't like the Dragons will say, you know, that the Melbourne Storm salary cap stuff helped you guys, but you know, I, I honestly felt we were the best team no matter who we played that year. And um, it was it was just an amazing journey. We we were you know, solid defensively. We had some really good attack to that left-hand side, plus we had a little bit of X factor by the time Gaz had come back. So mm. it was a really good year. When Mark Gazney came back, and I think it was Monday night, 
footy, he came back in, and I think he scored in his comeback game as well. When he did come back into that side, Sowie, what sort of confidence did you have? Because, I mean, he was a superstar when he left the game. He was probably the best centre in the comp. And to come back in mid-season uh, into that finals run, that must have been massive confidence boost for you guys. Yeah, I played with Gaz before he left, and I um, I wasn't the player that I was when he came back. And, you know, I used to defer a lot of ball to him and, and pass and stuff when he wanted it. And when he came back, I was so confident within myself that, he had to fit in with my style rather than me fit in with his, which which made Gaz so good, if that makes sense. He came back to a team that had been pretty good but just needed some something else on that right edge and he committed himself to, to getting to know my game, to getting to know, you know, how we defend and sacrifice you know, maybe some of those touches for, for the more gritty play. So Gaz was an integral part and when he came back I was pretty excited and so was both Scott because he knew he could didn't have to just stand out there and tackle. He could actually get the ball. So um, it was it was pretty cool to have Gaz back. And uh, he ends up scoring the first try in the grand final too, which is cool. Before we get to that first try in the grand final, which you set up, of course, let's go to the prelim final and the match-winning field goal that you kick. What's it like as a playmaker coming up with that match-winning play? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's cool. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how, how, many times, how many times did you watch the replay of that? Um, I've probably watched it more in retirement than when I was actually playing, but um, it was it was funny because that week a lot was made about the Tigers and Dragons mm. and 05 and all that crap. And uh, a lot of us younger guys hadn't been in that situation, so we didn't really care for the for the storylines of 05. But all I remember from, from that game is running out to a beehive of sound with 80,000, I think it was 81,000 there. Um, and usually before a game, when I come out of the sheds, I'm ready to go. The, the warm-up you see out on the field for me was time to calm down and get ready to go again. I was already um, in a bit of a lather before I came out, which is how I liked it. And I usually always had three shots of field goal, uh, before, uh, three makes, I beg your pardon, before I uh, finished practicing field goals or kicks or whatever. Anyway... Um, I'd receive the ball and nail the first one like straight down the fucking middle like I even said to myself fuck that's good like that just felt right and yeah we, we end up getting into the moment I nailed the field goal <clears throat> after Benji kicked out in the full and I remember saying to Huey so my stepdad he goes he goes I knew you were going to kick it and I said oh how and I knew he knew what I was thinking he said you only had one shot in the warm up and I said I hit it that sweet. I didn't need to waste them. Wow. So uh, that was probably yeah, easily the best field goal I've ever hit. And if you watch it back, it's it's never missing the whole way. So um, yeah, it was it was cool to come up clutch in those moments. But also those are the moments that I spent hours and hours practicing. And you know, a lot of credit goes to Nathan Seen for getting that pass on the money. And you know, the boys that set me up in that position. But it was nice to deliver in the clutch. We used to see you run out, Sally. Whenever you ran out, you would just let out this massive just scream. Were you conscious that you were doing that, or was that just all that adrenaline that you're talking about being built up that you had to let it go before kickoff? Yeah, a bit of both. I don't know when it started, um, but a bit of both. I think that I enjoyed doing it at away grounds because I knew that the fans were going to get a kick out of trying to bag me, and I knew that I could really harness that and 
Uh, Wally Lewis spoke about when he'd come to Sydney, the booze that he'd get just made him play better because he knew that they were worried about him and how he was playing. So, um, yeah, I remember running out at Origin and, you know, up in Queensland, which is one of the best moments of my career, even though we lost, you know, just running out of there and screaming and yelling and getting a bit of that nervous energy out was, it just became, you know, the way I started games and it was important to me and, you know, Wayne Bennett spoke about your preparation being your own time. So, um, yeah, whatever it took to get me ready, I was willing to do, and that was certainly part of it. Let's talk about preparation. So I spoke with um, Darius Boyd, and I was asking him about the 2006 Broncos Grand Final and then the 2010 Dragons Grand Final. And um, I was asking him, like, just what the feeling was like during the week. I was like, the Dragons had a long premiership drought. There was a lot of expectation from you rolling over from 2009 to 2010. Like, it must have been an intense week. And he's like, no. So we were so relaxed. We were playing games, like, the day before on the day of the game, Chinese whispers or something. Is that that true or is that him just underplaying the situation? (laughs) No, sorry. I was just... um... Yeah, thinking back to that grand final day, it was very relaxed. I mean, you know, we'd uh, we'd spent the week at the Swiss Grand at Bondi in enemy territory, but uh, we'd questioned why we were staying there for the semi-final, but Wayne quickly said that he'd won his seven grand final, six grand finals there, so that didn't <laughs> that uh, quickly put to bed any any uh, nervousness that he'd uh, he'd won six grand finals staying at that hotel. Um, but yeah, grand final day, we were supposed to go for a walk and. It was raining, so we just start sitting there in a group and talking shit and, and putting shit on each other, and then all of a sudden we start off the game of Chinese whispers. And for me, who's got OCD, it was very like, <laughs> yeah, boys, we need to switch on here. Like, what the fuck are we doing? You know. But yeah. uh, in a way, it was it was a blessing in disguise because it just took our focus off. We knew it was going to be the biggest moment of of any of our lives, but. Um, we'd done the hard work to get there. We just needed to turn up and, and get the job done. And then you get out there and you set up the first try with that uh, kick for Gaz. What, what was that like as a playmaker to get that one under your belt early? Was that a huge confidence boost for you? Yeah, we were smart from Wayne because he'd come up with the play. We'd nicknamed it Frenchie because Gaz had come back from France yeah. and the, it was... Yeah, for a person like myself to get myself into the game, not that I needed one to go right, but it would have, it was just a big play to come up with. You know, the first time we get down there, we are going to kick him behind the line, no matter what. And when you watch that set back, I know we got a lucky call with BMOS, but um, I actually overkicked the ball. Gaz does amazing to get himself in position, but I overkicked it and uh, we end up scoring the try. But it got me into the game. I'd settled down from there. You know, defensively, I was pretty good on that edge and. Um, we can see the try after that, but I felt like I was in the game for the whole time and doing my job, so uh, that was smart from Wayne. That second half, Sowie, when uh, I think it was Dean Young who scored to sort of put the game away, and you guys knew that you'd won the grand final, what's that feeling like, particularly given what you'd been through in 2009 when you were expected to win the comp, that pressure of 2010, so now you finally had it in the bag. How did you control those emotions to get through to the end of the game? Yeah, well, I didn't think Dino had scored. <laughs> I thought it was a knock on. So uh, they, the boys were all celebrating, and I came in late, and I just said, "No, nah, it's a knock on." What, you know? And then they awarded the try, so I felt a little bit silly. But um, I started to probably, you know, celebrate. I think I kicked a couple of sideline conversions. Uh, one to go from 
I think it was uh, eight to twelve. Uh, sorry, six to twelve. That first one, and then to eighteen, and it was um, eighteen eight, which was big for us because I knew that we weren't going to concede any points, and you know we could we could strangle them to a win here. But we started celebrating with about six minutes to go, and Gaz. Uh, me and Jace were actually celebrating and starting to woo up the crowd and stuff and Gaz just turned around and had his cranky head on still and it was 30 to 8 and we were like, fucking relax Gaz, it's over. So, um, yeah, amazing, amazing to be able to still celebrate in that game and we probably, yeah, that was how focused we were. We didn't really realise how long there was left on the clock and we just went about our business. Where's your premiership now ring now, Sal? Do you have it on display? Is it in the pool room somewhere? Uh, it sits beside my bed. Um, I, being an American sports fan, that, that ring to me is the highlight of my sporting career. Um, yeah, I think in Australia we don't, you know, some guys don't even know where their premiership rings are, but to yeah. me it'll always be front and centre because I know that from that American sports background and passion that they have and, and what a, a championship means to them, you know, that means the same to me. So I wear it to functions and some guys don't wear theirs and I get paid out for it. But I'm proud to be able to wear that ring because you know, what what happens is you meet people to know that a dragon stands you know, at these lunches and stuff like that. And all they want to do is just have a photo with, with the ring. You know, and some players don't get that. Some players feel embarrassed. And you know, I, I love wearing my ring and sharing it with fans that were there on that day and I mean, the amount of fans that were there on that day, you think the stadium held 300,000, but um, <laughs> I, I love the fact that I can share in those memories with fans um, after what was an amazing day. 2011 rolls around, and uh, you get the chance to play Origin footy, which is a pinnacle for everyone. Uh, what was that like when you got the call to say, you're in, you're making your debut against what was it? an amazing Queensland team? Yeah, Ricky Stewart had rung me a couple of weeks out um, of the City Country game and, and said, yeah, providing I'm fit, that I'm going to be the 5'8". Um, the Dragons were just going too good. I thought that I was ready in 2010, but that was the old adage that they needed to see, sort of 18 months of consistent footy to get it done, to get a selection like that. So, um, yeah, going in against that team, you know, we lost game one, 16-12, pretty much the last sort of couple of minutes, and you know, winning game two in Sydney and in front of 80,000 at uh, Homebush there was was amazing. But to sit back and look at that team that they had, uh, Lockyer's ever last game, mm. it was amazing that yeah, amazing that we we're even on the field. To be honest, I mean they've got you know potentially three or four immortals. So, um, but yeah, Origin was a great experience. I think I learned a lot about myself. Um, I wish I'd got another crack at it because I didn't handle. Um, the the aftermath of Origin when I came back to play for the Dragons, you know, we lost four in a row. I nearly got dropped. Um, I just was fatigued. So I would love another crack at, at the Queenslanders, but it uh, wasn't meant to be. So, but still very proud that I played for New South Wales. How tough was it, Sally, coming in as a half in that team? Because, I mean, through that stretch, New South Wales went through something like 10 or 12, or could have been even more, halves pairings. What was that pressure like, knowing that you know your half and five eight at the time were just living and dying by the sword? Yeah, I, I didn't really think about it too much. Um, yeah, it was 
you know, I sort of took the old adage of, you know, I'm here to do a job and I got, you know, we only have to win two games. So, you know, I thought that my preparation was going to be key to me performing and I needed to do that. And, you know, I've never watched the Origin games back. Um, I, I probably overanalyze it now that I'm in the media, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I didn't feel any pressure. I felt like that I was at the top of my game and uh, I needed to just make sure I was doing the right thing so that other people could do their, their job and we'd hopefully get the job done. And then you uh, moved to the Panthers to finish off your NRL career. What happened at the end there with the Dragons, Sowie? Did it end happily or was it a bit disappointing the way things wrapped up there? Yeah, disappointing. Um, Dragons had changed coach with Stephen Price, who we had a, a very good relationship as player and assistant coach while Wayne was there and had a couple of lean years after Wayne had left. And I guess, yeah, that back to that point I made earlier in the pod about you know, probably not living my life as strict as when Wayne was there and not getting along with the coach and disagreeing on some stuff because I felt like we'd sort of stripped back too much of and gotten rid of what Wayne was doing to make us successful. So um, I got offered a one-year deal by the Dragons, so I felt very disrespected there. Um, and they were trying to get Gareth Widdop, and I got offered four from Penrith. So I made my way out to Penrith and um, never got a lap of honour or, or honoured or mentioned or anything like that at the Dragons. Uh, it pretty much just wiped me as soon as I signed that deal with Penrith. So, yeah, I guess you could say there's some, um, still some angst towards the club and how they dealt with me, but, you know, it's, it's both ways. I, looking back, it probably was the best thing for me. Um, I would never have met my wife if I didn't move out to Penrith, but, yeah, yeah it uh, didn't, certainly didn't end well. It sucks because you took them to the Holy Grail, something that, you know, no team and, and particularly no half have been able to do for so many years. Um, Penrith, I, I, my brother-in-law's a Mad Panthers fan, and uh, the people of the West just love their rugby league. What was it like going to, to the Panthers? It was great. You know, it was... Um, I had a lot to prove, so I'd come back with a chip on my shoulder from England and I'd come back overweight, but I, I felt like I'd got myself into pretty good physical shape in 2014 and, you know, we had a, a horrid year with injuries. I mean, mm-hmm. at the end of 2014, I know we made the prelim final, but we had 17 guys going for major surgery. Oh, so, right. um, that was myself included. So we, we um, it was a rebuild yeah, we probably need to get better. And we thought, like, 2015, there was a lot of hype around us carrying on the good work from the year before. But uh, myself, you know, Dylan, I had three back surgeries in 2015. And uh, during the season and stuff, I just could never get off, off the ground. So um, I love my time at Penrith. I think it's a really well-run organisation. I loved talking footy with Gus and, you know, that, what that brings to that. So, uh, yeah, I didn't really finish how I wanted to, but... Yeah, it's like I said, it's you look back at your life, Snowy, and you think about contracts and all that kind of stuff and you know, me and Anthony Griffin didn't see eye to eye on a few things and they needed to bring this, you know, kid that they've never heard of, Nathan Cleary through, uh, who turned out to, who turned out to be pretty good. But um I just yeah, I was at a different stage in my life, you know, I back into my career, you know, dealing with private issues and you know, I had to learn a lot about myself through that, so Sometimes that didn't reflect in me being the best person that I am, but you learn from those things. And 
uh, ended up retiring you know, at the end of 2016. Those back injuries, Sal, how hard were they? Because you were such, I mean, explosive off the mark. You saw a gap, bang, you were gone, and the, and the play just went with you. Those back injuries, how much did they play on your mind, and how hard was it playing injured and trying your best, but seeing those gaps that you used to be able to hit, but because of the injuries you weren't able to? Yeah, I lost feeling in my left leg the week before round one in 2015, and I'd worked hard on uh, my ankle Rico from 2014. So, um, yeah, I lost feeling, got it needled in the bottom of my foot, played that whole game with my left foot pretty much numb. Same again the next week. I just couldn't go on, and to have a dissectomy um, skim down, you know, it, it took a lot because it was my left foot. If it was my right leg, I wouldn't have worried about it because yeah. I just needed that to pivot off. But my left foot, I needed to be able to feel it and yeah, you know, for kicks and different styles of kicks and stuff like that, I needed to be able to feel my foot. So um, I went in, had it done. The disc slipped out a couple of days later, so I had to go back in. And yeah, it was it's frustrating because I still got a sore back and neck today. But um, yeah, you know, I worked my way back, had a good preseason. Then at the end of 2015, it slipped out again. So. When uh, the disc is pushing on the nerve, it's it's um, yeah pretty pretty hard to take. But yeah, I worked my way back, and I think I rushed back both times. To be honest, I think I got back in eight to ten weeks after that sort of first lot of surgeries, and then same time frame again. So uh, always wanting to play, but yeah, probably in the end wasn't the right decision. The other one I wanted to touch on, Sally, were the concussions. Um, because I remember you getting knocked out a couple of times and a couple of bad ones. Uh, was it Jack Whiten in 2014 for memory or maybe 2015? And uh, I wanted to touch on because now we see players are forced to go straight off the field uh, and they're forced to sit out a week or maybe two weeks. But when you were playing, it was magic sponge and away you go. Uh, looking back now, how, how hard was that? And, and that must have had some impacts from sort of week to week as well. Now we see the players get a week off, but you weren't afforded the same sort of luxuries. Yeah, well, yeah, I remember that Jack White one in 2015. I got knocked out, spent the night at Canberra Hospital. And, um, yeah, when when I was playing early on, it was like, you know, get up because you're being soft and they bring out the yeah. salt and stuff. You know, having been knocked out about 20 times in my career, it's, um, yeah. I've no doubt that it's, got some sort of lasting effects but I've been tested and, and cleared and all that kind of stuff but um, I think the, the mentality changed you know I think of the times that I've played and knocked out but sort of got away with it in a fact because players you know I don't think anyone's soft um, we yeah. have changed that mentality I got criticised about everything being soft but anytime I put a jump on that was yeah, twice or three times the level of anyone else going out because you don't have to be physically strong to play NRL. You have to be mentally strong to be able to come up with decision-making. So uh, being knocked out certainly uh, is one of those things that comes with the territory, but the protocols around it now, the NRL's done really well in, in making it safe as, as possible. Before we wrap up, I, I need to take the time out to self-indulge for a second and say thank you to you because I said my brother-in-law's a mad Panthers fan, and uh, he lives up in Brisbane, but every time, uh, a couple of times a year, we go down and watch uh, the Broncos play the Panthers, or his brother-in-law, his brother, I should say, is a Sharks fan. We go down and watch the Panthers play the Sharks at Panthers Stadium, and a couple of times we've bumped into you, is it, uh, is it the Paceway? Uh, yeah. Around Pe- 
and we've said g'day, and uh, you've been sort of with Mason family, you always have time for the fan. And I'd sit there and watch you, and we were nervous. Like, do we go and say hello? And we saw some other people, and we're like, oh, it's just trying to relax and have a beer. You always had time to say hello to whoever it was, no matter what the situation, Sally. And as, as a fan, as a huge fan, the impact that has. Like, we walked away just going, Kenny Sally's the best bloke alive. <laughs> I have to say thank you for it, mate. But do you realise what sort of impact that has on fans, or is that just you being a good bloke? Yeah, I think there's, there's two ways because yeah, when I'm when I was playing, a lot of people didn't like me because I wasn't playing for their team or I'd done something to their team or you know had, had, you know done a play to, to help their team lose or something like that. And then you know if you speak about those instances out at the paceway and stuff like that. I'll talk to anyone and have a beer. Um, with anyone or talk to anyone, but I, I have rules around it. If I'm eating dinner with my family, yeah. uh, especially yeah. now with my, my little girl, you know, I I find it rude for people to come up and approach me mm. while I'm at dinner. But um, the the thing that pisses me off is that if you're sitting over in the paceway and I'm sitting having a beer and you're yelling out at me and disrespecting me, not even by saying anything, just by like, hey, showered, and you want me to look over, like. It, that that really pisses me off, so I can be a bit prickly like that. But uh, most of the time, I'm I'm pretty generous with my time, and uh, if people can find a balance, I'll sit and talk to them as you as you know yourself. But um, I, I don't yeah I don't take any shit from anyone, and um, it's it's sometimes it's to my detriment. You know, I get myself into heated situations, but other times um, I think people, most people can respect the fact that if I'm out with my family or yeah, if I am having a quiet beer, if I say hello, there's, there's, I can still move on and enjoy my afternoon or night. Well, I can guarantee that we'd had a thousand beers under our belts and walked <laughs> past and, and said a quick day. You smiled and said day, and you made our night, uh, which was fantastic. You spoke um, a couple of times through the podcast about being a dad and about your wife, Maddie. Uh, how special is it? Because you guys have got another little bundle of joy on the way, do you not? Yeah, we do, mate. She's, um, yeah, Maddie... Maddie changed my life. You know, if I'd met her ten years ago, I'd probably one, I'd still be playing, and uh, two, I'd, I'd be a lot healthier. <laughs> That's for sure. But um, no, she's uh, yeah, they're those, you know, her and uh, Indiana, my daughter. We've got Ivy on the way. Um, they're just the really the reason for me doing everything that I'm doing and trying to make a living. So uh, they make everything better. At the end of a long day, you can come home and, and escape the footy world, which is good. Um, and I love being a dad and a, and a loving husband, and you know our little soured family's growing. So we've got probably eight weeks left before wow. uh, Ivy gets here. So I'm doing as much footy stuff as I can and getting some <laughs> stuff in the bank so that I can um, maybe slow it down a, a touch uh, before I start looking after two girls. Is uh, Ivy? Is that not a Alan Iverson reference? Nah, <laughs> no, no. Nah, nah. My wife, uh, big Beyonce fan. And uh, her daughter's name Blue Ivy. So I said that, yeah, if it was going to be a boy, it was going to be Boston, but uh, we might have to try for number three for that. Sally, thanks so much for your time today, mate. I really appreciate it. And like I said, if you're a sports fan or just a fan of good banter, hop on to wherever you get your podcast from and type in Sweet and Sally. You won't be disappointed. Sally, thanks a lot, brother. I appreciate it. No worries, mate. Um, yeah, it's nice to see everyone getting into the podcast game. I appreciate your time, and hopefully we'll catch up. Not at Penrith uh, Paceway, but if you <laughs> ever see me out, definitely come up and have a beer.
<laughs> Will do, mate. Appreciate it, Sal. You mate, best of luck with the um, the new arrival in eight weeks' time. Thanks, mate. Cheers. There he is, one of the nicest guys alive, Jamie Sow. And at hand of my heart, I can say I'm a massive fan of the Sweet and Sour podcast. Go and check it out. While you're checking out that podcast, type in On The Hill Podcast. Go and check out that back catalogue. Heaps of great chats there. Uh, you can find it anywhere you find your podcast and make sure you tell your friends. Until next week, see ya. This is On The Hill with Snowy.